Now let's turn again in our Bibles to the New Testament, to the Gospel according to Luke uh, chapter 9, and we're going to read from verse 28, Luke chapter 9, verse 28. If you're using one of the church Bibles, I believe the passage uh, will be found on page 1040, page 1040. Now, about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. This month in the mornings, we've been having a little series of passages otherwise unconnected from one another, but connected by this principle that they focus on major events in the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus. And as we've uh, noted more than once now before in our church here, uh, we never forget Christmas. We always remember Easter. But there are other events in the life and ministry of Jesus that maybe we remember uh, Ascension Sunday, maybe we remember uh, Pentecost Sunday. I, I would be kind of surprised if any of us in the last two weeks, along with many people in the Christian church, have been celebrating the Feast of the Transfiguration, which took place, as I'm sure you all know, a couple of weeks ago. But it's to the Transfiguration that we come today. And what links uh, these different passages is that they, they all are events that take place in very specific geographical locations. They are all, in a sense, uh, one-offs. There is a day when Jesus comes to the River Jordan and He is baptized. There is a period of about a month and a half when He is in the wilderness, at the end of which He is severely tempted by the devil. Uh, Here, uh, probably one morning, stretching perhaps into the next day, He is with three of His disciples uh, on a mountain, and as we'll see, God willing, next week with these same three disciples 
uh, he is in a garden. And in some ways, this event, the transfiguration of Jesus, although Luke himself doesn't use that word, is the most mysterious of all. Uh, Celebrated, as I've said, still in many parts of the Christian church. and, And yet, what would be missing from Jesus' ministry? What would be missing from your knowledge of Him? What difference would it make to your Christian life if we we knew absolutely nothing about this, or if, in fact, it had never happened? What difference would that have made to the Lord Jesus? And we're helped to answer that question, I think, when we when we realize that this section in Luke's gospel is the absolute turning point of the gospel, the way Luke tells the story, the distinctive way he tells the story, this is the turning point. Uh, Peter has just confessed that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus, in the verses that follow, have has told, has told them that he is going to Jerusalem, he's going to suffer, die, and he's going to rise again, and then he has challenged them to take up the cross, deny themselves, and follow him. And the previous section ended with this word of promise in verse 27, I tell you truly there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And it's not long after he goes down the mountain with them that we come to that famous statement in Luke chapter 9, where we're told that from this point onwards, Jesus turned his face to go to Jerusalem. And the whole of the rest of Luke's gospel, rather uniquely, is told round the story of this extensive journey that the Lord Jesus makes to Jerusalem. So, in a sense, this is a center point and a turning point of the whole drama of the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's set within the context of this specific promise in verse 27. I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And that's a real clue to what follows. There are three standing in this company of disciples who will see the kingdom of God. Now, in the narrative that we've been following Uh, in his baptism, Jesus was proclaimed by his heavenly Father to be the King. Uh, The words of the second Psalm, He, he is the Son who is the King. And so, at his baptism, Jesus' kingdom was announced. In his temptations in the wilderness, his kingdom was established over against the the kingdoms of this world and the kingdoms of darkness. When for, as it were, the first time in human history, Satan was beaten back. 
And immediately afterwards, Jesus then, as it were, goes in to reverse the work of Satan and the damage that he has done to men and women, calling people to be his disciples, uh, healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, raising the dead. All of it indications that the, the kingdom has arrived and that the king is here. And now what we see, I think, clearly in this passage is that the kingdom that's been announced and the kingdom that has been established is now the kingdom that is manifested. And as we go on, we'll discover it is the, the kingdom that is ultimately accomplished by Jesus in the victory of his death and resurrection, and then extended internationally by Jesus in His ascension and in the sending of the Holy Spirit, and that will be consummated by the Lord Jesus on His return. So, in a sense, all of these passages in Scripture, in stages, bring about the fulfillment of the promise of the second psalm, I have established my King, and if He asks of me, I will give Him the nations for his inheritance. And the implication that the psalmist draws therefore as a kind of evangelist to people is, so kiss the Son, trust the Son, yield to the Son, enter into the kingdom of the Son. And here in a way that is really unique, isn't it, in the gospel record about our Lord Jesus these three disciples see this kingly character of Jesus, the regal character of Jesus. It seems physically manifested. It, they had been with him before when he was praying. They would be with him again when he was praying. But they would never see this happen again. When Jesus' physical bearing seemed to be transformed. His, his face, his countenance was changed. There was this, this, as Luke says, this glow in his garments that seems to suggest that this, this was an expression that was coming from within his very being as he met with God on this mountain of transfiguration. And I think, among other things, it's fairly clearly a reassurance to the Lord Jesus and a little glimpse to these three disciples, although clearly, despite seeing this, they still could not take it in, that what he had said about himself was, in fact, the divine pathway, that the pathway to glory was via the cross. And they were getting a little glimpse here. He was, in a sense, getting a reassurance here that for the joy that was set before him, he would be able to endure the cross, as Hebrews 12 says, and despise the shame. So, first of all, this is an experience in which those who are to witness Jesus' humiliation are given a little glimpse of his exaltation. Those who are to see his crucifixion and shame are given a little illustration for a moment of his glorification in 
majesty, and clearly it left a deep impression on them, as we'll see. So, this transfiguration takes place. There is a there is a metamorphosis, as the other gospel writers say. And the scholars suggest that Luke doesn't use that language because he's writing for Gentiles, and the Gentile world was awash with these myths of the gods changing into humans and uh, humans changing into things. And the scholars suggest that Luke was very guarded so that, that his readers would not misunderstand that this was just something like the mythologies with which they had grown up as children. But this was a real historical event that took place in the life of our Lord Jesus when as He was praying, His facial appearance was altered and His clothes became dazzling white. Now, we can, we can get a little handle on this, can't we? Because we, 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 we understand in our relationships with each other that what's going on inside comes outside. You're looking a bit glum today. Actually, you're all looking a bit glum today, but now you're not looking so glum. So that, that we are accustomed to, to the inside emerging. Now, most of us here are Scots, and we do not waste energy outwardly expressing the degree to which we are enjoying ourselves inwardly. Granted that, but it's true, isn't it? But there's something, there's something of a different dimension here, because what is, what is emerging here is not simply, uh, as it were, Jesus smiling back to His heavenly Father, but Jesus manifesting, or His Father desiring to manifest in Him the glory of His person. Remember how Paul puts it in Philippians 2, that he, he, uh, he took on the form of a servant. He became man. He humbled himself. He was obedient. He was obedient even to the death of the cross, and therefore God highly exalted him. And it's as though God is communicating to these three apostles, and they apparently don't share this with any of the others that the one they are going to see humiliated is the one who will be glorified because He is, in fact, the Son of God. He is the King. He is the one uh, to whom the promise will be fulfilled. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. It's as though if they had eyes to see, they would have said to one another, oh, that's who He really is. And this is why this transfiguration takes place. Yes, of course, there are, there are pre-echoes of it. Moses, for example, when, he, when he's on the mountain, when he, when he goes into the tent of, of uh, meeting in the wilderness, and he, he doesn't realize that when he comes out from the presence of God, his face is shining. Stephen, in his last days, last hours, Sometimes his face looked like the face of a man, sometimes like the face of an angel. There was, a, there was a touch of God upon these men. But in this case, it all seems to have come from within the glorious person he was himself. 
And it's interesting that the, the three men uh, who witnessed this, I, I take it it would also have been true of James, who was martyred very early on in the story of the Acts of the Apostles. This, this embedded itself in their memory. Peter in Second Peter chapter 1 speaks about, about seeing the power of God displayed on the mountain when they saw the glory of the Lord in the Lord Jesus. And could it be this that John is referring to when he says in the prologue to his gospel, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. The transfiguration of the Lord Jesus uh, is not a change of His humanity into deity. It is an expression of the fact that the person who has taken our humanity is Himself the Son of God, the King whom God is establishing in the world, and Jesus is giving them a little foretaste of what at the end of John's gospel we learn was his deepest desire for us. Father, he says, John 17, 24, Father, here's my deepest desire for them, that they may see me in my glory. I, I can't remember which tennis player it was, but you remember the first tennis player who did the unWimbledon thing when he'd won Wimbledon? And he, he jumped into the stands and he ran up to the supporters, uh, his family members, his coach, hugs, you know, joy, everything. I mean, it was so unseemly for Wimbledon. Well, what was he doing? Why to them? Because these were the ones who had been with him in the agony of his training. These were the ones who had been with him at his low points and his disappointments. And he, he, he wanted to... He wanted to he wanted them to be there to see him in his glory. And there's something very touching about this. All of this could have happened. Jesus could have said, I'm, you need to stay here. I'm going up the mountain. And they would have seen nothing of it. But you see, he's bringing them in because he wants them to see the glory because at the end of the day, in the teaching of the rest of the New Testament, it's our ability to see the glory that leads us through the shame and the trials, the difficulty. We live the Christian life, as it were, from the glory backwards. This, these light afflictions, says Paul, are working for us this eternal, heavy glory and it's when we, when we see the glory, it's in the light of the glory that the afflictions seem to be small and temporary. They don't feel small and they don't look temporary. They seem to go on and on. And so you see, we need this divine magnifying glass to be able to look at the shame through the light of the glory. And that here begins with our Lord Jesus. So there's the transformation of Jesus, the transfiguration of Jesus. We might just say the revelation of Jesus. And then there is this amazing event of these two men who appear and have a discussion with him. There's transfiguration, and then if I can put it that way, there is a, there's a conversation, there's a discussion. 
and uh, Moses and Elijah are there. Now, why Moses and Elijah? Well, Luke doesn't tell us why Moses and Elijah are there. And there may be all kinds of reasons why Moses and Elijah are there. They both have strange endings to their lives, don't they? Um, some people think this is, this is a representation of the law and the prophets. I think myself, it's probably got more to do with the fact that the Old Testament promised, first of all, in, in Deuteronomy 18, that a day would come when God would raise up a prophet like Moses who would be greater than Moses, and God said, very interestingly, notice the words, listen to him. And remember right at the end of the prophecy of Malachi? There is this promise that before the great and the terrible day of the Lord, there will be an appearance of Elijah. And, and maybe that's the reason. Maybe, maybe these two men are the, are the witnesses to the fact that what these apostles are seeing here in Jesus is the beginning of the messianic kingdom, the beginning of the last days. Remember how when Peter preaches on Pentecost, he says, what's happening here is a sign that the last days have begun. The new era has started. The messianic kingdom has been established, and now it's being internationalized. And uh, perhaps uh, that's why Moses and Elijah appear. One of the older Scottish, I don't mean really old, but older Scottish writers of the 19th century put this in a rather neat way. He said, Moses and Elijah appear to hand in their resignation. Isn't that interesting? It's as though they are saying our time, all that we lived for, it's all fulfilled in Him. And so we can, we can go into retirement. Now, you still do things in retirement. Uh, you don't cease to exist. You still have your function. But they're saying it's Him, it's Him, it's Him. And you notice what they discuss. This is perhaps the, the, uh, the special little hint that Luke records after his careful research into the ministry of Jesus. Um, they discuss his departure. Now, notice, notice the language. I'm using the ESV, and I guess it's maybe roughly the same in the, in the NIV, he, he, this is a departure he's going to accomplish. It's a pretty unusual way to speak, isn't it? I'm going to accomplish my departure. He's obviously speaking about his death. But as, as I'm sure most of you know, the word that Luke uses is the word exodus. And it's, you know, I can't say the word exodus in this context without you thinking of the exodus. And here is Moses who, who was the, the principal mover in the exodus, and Moses is discussing with Jesus the exodus that he is going to accomplish. Moses knew well that it was God who accomplished the exodus, but Moses also knew as he saw what happened when he gave the law that the, the, the law could not accomplish what it commanded because of our sinfulness, and therefore we 
we needed forgiveness and transformation. And Moses speaks about that in all different kinds of ways. But now Jesus has come, and he's, he's going to accomplish the real exodus that we need. And the real exodus we need is not from physical and geographical bondage in Egypt, but from spiritual bondage in sin and in shame and to Satan and to death and to fear. And they are talking to Jesus about how he's going to accomplish this. And if you fast forward to the end of Luke, remember that, that walk to Emmaus when Jesus talks to the two on the road to Emmaus about the way in which so many things in the Old Testament Scriptures only make sense when you see that they are pointing to Him. And you can't help wondering if the disciples had been able to overhear this conversation if when the two from Emmaus Road ran back on Easter Sunday and told them all about the passages Jesus had explained to them, that maybe Peter and uh, maybe John would have said, oh, oh, Jesus explained to us after the transfiguration, these were the very passages they were talking about themselves. Because He's not only the King, but the way in which He's been presented, as, as we've seen in this little series, is the thing about this king that God is setting on his throne is that he is also the suffering servant. He's the chosen one of God's love. And that what Moses and Elijah therefore are talking about is the way in which this king who is now appearing in his glory is the king who will accomplish his exodus by himself becoming the Passover lamb led like a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, chastisement of our peace upon Him, so that with His stripes we might be healed. He is the fulfillment of all of the promises of God. As Paul says so amazingly, Every promise of God has its amen. Jesus says amen because they are fulfilled in Him. But then thirdly, notice the reaction. Actually, there are two reactions we should notice. And the first is that dear Peter, whom we all love so much because most of us feel we are so like him, opens his mouth and speaks because he's, he's really no idea what to say. Uh, he doesn't stop and think. And, 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 and what he says is it's kind of amazing, really. I mean, it's just full of mistakes. He sees, he sees these two figures leaving, Moses and Elijah, and he says, okay, you know, time out here. Let's build three booths. Jesus, we'll build three booths, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and Jesus, one for you. And, you know, if you were Moses and Elijah, you would say, hey, I've come from a happier land than this. I don't want to hang around on this mountain. So, they, they don't really get Moses and Elijah. And then they want to stick Jesus along with Moses and Elijah. I mean, the, 
in a way, he's demeaning Jesus, isn't he? It would have been much better if he'd said, you know, let's build two booths for them so they can stay with you. And I know it's sometimes difficult to kind of feel your way into what people say in the, in the, in the New Testament, but here Peter seems to want to prolong the bliss of this experience that he doesn't seem to understand. But then he says, it's, it's staggering really, he says, it's good that we're here. You know, you're kind of amazed that a voice doesn't come from heaven simply to say, this has got nothing to do with you being here. You are not at the center of this. This is about Him. And of course, that's what the voice of God says. Is there really kind of, to me, it's a very interesting illustration of one of the many Peter principles that we encounter in our lives as to why we can uh, we can be so interested in what the Lord's doing as long as we're involved in what the Lord is doing, and in a way it's about us. And that's why alongside Peter's reaction, there's the Father's reaction. And it's, this is one of those places where, you know how sometimes you, you read a passage in the Gospels and, and you hear an echo of something in the Old Testament? This is a little section in the Gospels where where passages from the Old Testament are like, they're almost crushing one another out for our attention to help us to see what it is that is actually happening here. And so the Heavenly Father, you see there is this cloud, what does that say? Um, This is the Shekinah glory, isn't it? Uh, This is the this is, the, this is the cloud that filled the temple on the day when it was dedicated. And uh, almost like Isaiah in Isaiah 6, it was, it was suffocatingly glorious. Um, and God is saying by visible symbol, my glory rests upon Him. And then the voice speaks. And what the voice says has all kinds of echoes of the Old Testament. Yes, our psalm too. Um, I've set my king on Zion. Ask of me and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance. Uh, Kiss the sun while you can. But there's also an echo of of Abraham taking his his beloved son Isaac and, and being willing to sacrifice him and then being told, Stop, because God Himself will provide the Lamb. And then there's also, isn't there, the echo of those words with which the suffering servant songs in Isaiah begin. This is my chosen one, my, my loved one. And then there's the echo of Deuteronomy 18. I'm going to raise up a prophet one day, like Moses, but greater than Moses. Moses is going from the scene. He's going from this scene. Peter, James, John, listen to what he says. And that makes you wonder, well, exactly what is the Father telling them to listen to? 
And in the narrative, the last thing that they had heard Jesus speak about was that he was going to the cross in order to go to glory. And then in verse 23, he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And if that's what the Father is referring to, it's not at all surprising that in the second half of verse 36, we are told, and I think these are probably two different things Luke is saying, they kept silent, and they told no one in those days anything of what they had seen, because it shuts your mouth, doesn't it? Because he's not said, if Peter, James, and John don't take up the cross and deny themselves and follow me, they can't be apostles. It's if anyone doesn't take up the cross and deny himself and follow him, he or she cannot be his disciple. Because whoever would save his life will lose it. And only those who lose their lives by this discipleship of trusting in Jesus and dying to self gain the whole world. Staggering, isn't it? I remember reading these words as a teenager. I think they're anonymous, at least I've never found their source. The last enemy to be destroyed in the believer is self. It dies hard. It will make any concessions if allowed to live. Self will permit the believer to do anything, give anything, sacrifice anything, suffer anything, be anything, go anywhere, take any liberties, bear any crosses, afflict soul or body to any degree, only if it can still hold sway. It will allow victory over pride and passion. It will permit any number of rivals so long as it can be promised the first place. It will consent, listen to this, it will consent to live in a hovel, in a garret, in the slums, in faraway heathendom, if only its life can be spared. It will endure anything rather than surrender. And these men had presumably seen crucifixions, and they understood what Jesus was saying. No matter how much psychologically they so resisted it, they were incapable of understanding it. And here he wanted to show them that uh, the pathway to the glory was the shame, but the glory put a different light on the shame. Because as they died to self, isn't it? He says this is a daily matter. Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. We struggle with this to the end of our lives. But it's the only way. Remember C.S. Lewis's words? Um, often quoted, I think. Anything in you that refuses to die can never be raised 
from the dead. In a way, if they hadn't seen this, they would just have heard the most terrifying words they could ever have heard. They would not believe that it was possible to gain the world by losing the world. But you see, he was showing them that it really was true. He was showing them that that was the way for him. And his father was commanding them, maybe even pleading with them, please, 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 please listen to him. It's a marvelous assurance to us of what will be ours if we do. And there are these beautiful words. There must have been a million sermons preached on these beautiful words, often probably out of context. And at the end of all, they saw Jesus only. And you see, that's what puts everything into a different light. When you see who He is, then you discover who you are. And then you're able to take up the cross, deny yourself, and every single day, follow Him. How can something so sore be so glorious? Well, there's a one-word answer, isn't there? Jesus, our Heavenly Father, we thank You for the living nature of the story of the gospel. Thank You for the way in which Your Spirit has so worked in the lives of those who wrote the gospel that we, we sense this is, this is not some human record, but is given to us from You, marvelously trustworthy. And we thank You for the way in which it points us to the Lord Jesus in order that He, in turn, may fill us with the Holy Spirit and bring us to the Father, so that we are able to say that in Jesus our fellowship is with You and with the Holy Spirit, and we enjoy this communion that helps us to put in its proper perspective the challenges of discipleship, the challenges of life, the pains, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. We pray You would help us keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross and despised the shame and is now set down at Your right hand. Help us to live in this, we pray, for His sake. Amen.